This episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by Monday.com, an amazing tool that allows you to work the way that work works for you. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jantz. My guest today is Carla Johnson. She's a world-renowned storyteller, speaker, and author of a book we're going to talk about today, Rethink Innovation, How the World's Most Prolific Innovators Come Up With Great Ideas That Deliver Extraordinary Outcomes. So welcome, Carla. Thank you, John. I'm delighted to be here. You got a lot of adjectives into that subject. Yeah. That was very good. <laughs> I may win a little bit of a prize for the world's longest subtitle on a book. <laughs> so this may sound really silly, but I bet you have to do this all the time because uh, I think the word innovation itself comes with lots of meanings to lots of different people. So I wonder if you could just give us your sort of set meaning on what the heck is innovation. Absolutely. And it's part of what I talk about very early in the book is to define it because everybody has a different definition. And I think in a lot of uh, situations, even with the definition, it's not clear what they think innovation is. So I boiled it down to the lowest common denominator. And I defined innovation as consistently coming up with new, great, and reliable ideas. And each, again, back to my adjectives, <laughs> each one is really important because I think the consistency is a big part of innovation. It's one thing to be that one hit wonder with an idea but it's another to be able to deliver it consistently over a long period of time. And, and that's where I came up with the idea of the prolific innovators. And then the, each of the words, the new, the great and reliable ideas, a new idea doesn't necessarily have to be something new that's never, ever been done before. It could just be something that's new to your industry. For example, McDonald's modeled their drive-through layout after a Formula One pit stop. And BMW used a video game control as the inspiration for their iDrive shifting systems, that kind of thing where it's new to an industry and very different. Now, just having something new isn't good, isn't enough on its own to be innovative, but also to be great, to be something that really does push the envelope. And I think great is one of those words that's a little bit more subjective, but it's the kind of thing that David Ogilvy would talk about, made you jealous that you didn't come up with that idea, raises the hair on your arm. And then the last word is reliable. And this is the third leg of the stool, because at the end of the day, we have to have ideas that are innovative, consistently innovative, that actually have a bottom line effect in one way or another. And I think that's a, a big differentiator in how some of these definitions of, of innovation come about, is that we do need the consistency, but they can't just be new ideas, can't just be great, can't just be reliable. They have to be a combination of all of these. And many people say that coming up with ideas is the easy part of an innovation. It's the execution that's difficult. But I believe that the execution is difficult because they weren't great ideas to start with. It's funny. I, I have a lot of people that come to me sometimes, and I'm sure you hear this too, that say, I have this idea. I, I can't really tell you about it or you need to sign an NDA. And I'm like, I don't need to sign an NDA because you know, just what you said, you're not going to do it. And I think that's probably true. So as I hear you talk about that, I do think a lot of people think of innovation as a light bulb moment, as opposed to, I, I think some of the greatest innovation goes with your consistency, that it's more of an evolution in some cases of just getting better and better at a way you do something. But everybody wants the Uber for lawnmowers idea or innovation or something. How do you get people to think about these? They, they can be little incremental steps that are innovation. 
Yeah. And, and that's the thing is that back to our stereotype and perception of innovation, we think it has to be a massive, disruptive, turn the world, your industry, your company upside down kind of idea. And that's actually not true. In fact, most of the companies that I researched and the people that I talked to, they're in for that long, consistent evolution idea. And, and there's a difference because there's a lot of companies that aren't actually innovative. They're just consistently doing incremental yeah. improvements. Right. And, and, the, and that's different than actual innovation. But again, if you look at how can you get everybody in your organization to start coming up, consistently come up with these new, great and reliable ideas, you can turn a company around in a very short amount of time if you have the whole army focused in the same direction and, and looking for opportunities using that mindset or looking at how they can solve problems from that way. And I think that the big aha moment that perception is because a lot of natural innovators, their mind thinks like this automatically mm -hmm. and they don't realize that their mind actually go, is going through a specific process. They just don't realize it. What are some of the major things that tend to get in the way? Even when people think, yeah, it's pretty obvious we should do something. What gets in the way? I think the biggest one is time. We have too many things to do and not enough hours in the day. And, and that's back to your idea of evolution is that the more that we can consistently practice this mindset, the better we're going to get at it. And it's just like an athlete. And the only way you get great at sinking that three-pointer is to practice its repetition. And then before you, it's just a habit and that's how you respond automatically in, in that situation. And, and the thing, same thing applies to being able to think innovatively under pressure, under deadline in any situation. You just have to practice it. And, and to be honest, a lot of people are, are not going to feel great at it, but it's the more repetition it improves your skill as an innovative. What do companies do that... Uh... Maybe even the innovation is obvious, but the innovation is also going to cannibalize the business or the profit. For example, if I owned a major newspaper 15 years ago, major city publication newspaper 15 years ago, I probably said, you know what? We ought to be giving away our classifieds for free because the internet's coming and that's going to gut our business. But doing that would have gutted their business. And if I'm a if I'm a 55-year-old white guy, which I probably was, and I'm thinking I got about eight years left to sail on out of here, am I going to innovate then? I think the biggest thing that holds companies back from innovation is, is just like you said, this is how we've always done things. Right. But I think if you can elevate what you do as a business above the product and service that you sell, above just the mission and vision, which I think most companies have a committee that come up with it and then they put it on a conference room wall or a website and they never ever look at it again. And instead look at what's the purpose of why we're in business to start with. So for newspapers, was it to sell physical newspapers or was it to keep people informed and in touch with the world? And I think when you look at the difference of what you deliver and, and what makes you come to work every day, that makes a big difference. And it's that it's actually the guiding principles of a brand purpose that make companies more innovative than those that aren't driven by purpose. Yeah. So there was a um, Peter Drucker quote, and I'm probably going to go wrong, but he talked about the only two things really mattering one in a business, one was profit, and the other one was innovation. And that was what, 60, 70 years ago, he said that, is it time that we should have a department? Uh, should we have somebody in charge of innovation? I think that, I think the quote was more in, in business, you're either in marketing, innovation, or you're a cost. 
And I think especially as we look at that in this last year, you're either in marketing as in building that relationship with the customer and bringing an understanding of what they actually need into the business, or you're innovating, evolving, and moving the business forward in, in some way, shape, or form, the ability to find opportunities and solve problems, or you're a cost. And if you're a cost, then you're expendable. And I don't think that we necessarily need a a formal innovation group in every company, because I think many times when there is one department responsible for innovation, most of the time it's a product or service focus Mm -hmm. rather than a mindset or a culture focus. And it's the difference between what you're doing and how you're doing it that makes a difference in the whole DNA and mindset of, of a company. So if you have innovation as a specific department, Many times, if you ask somebody else in the organization to think about how do I do something differently? How do I look at this differently? They say, no, no, that's not my job. That's the innovation groups. I don't want want anything to do with this. Or they say, I'm not smart enough to be an innovator. I'm not a PhD engineer. I'm not a data scientist. I'm not a design thinker. I, I can't do these things. And when, and even I've had heads of innovation say, the rest of the company expects us to solve every single problem that comes along. So again, it's the perception of what innovation is and who's allowed permission to think innovatively or or raise their hand with what they think is a great idea. And you mentioned the culture word, and I think that's really kind of what you're getting at, is that the companies that, that, that really bake this in, everybody thinks that way, everybody's given permission that way, people get the chance to fail when they try to innovate. And I guess if you don't have that, then people aren't going to take the risk. Yeah, and I think that's a part of a culture with... Plenty of companies say, oh, absolutely, we believe in innovation. And yeah, go out there and try. But the little asterisk at the end of that is, but don't ever fail. We're okay with failure as long as it doesn't happen. They hit your numbers, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So you actually have a process, of course. What good author or consultant wouldn't? And it has five parts to it that, that really, again, I think what you're saying is it's a framework that allows you to just go in and say, Wait, let's look at this or let's look at that as with a structure. So- Rather than having you unpack them all, maybe give the the overview, and then I want to drill down on what is absolutely my favorite one. Absolutely. One of the things that I see makes executives clench up is when I say everybody should be an innovator, because in their mind, they're just releasing all sorts of cats that they're going to have to herd, and it's going to be a nightmare. And and that's not the intent. Yes, that's not the intention of saying everybody's an innovator. It's everybody has the opportunity to innovate with a process that gives them structure guidelines and in a framework. And and that's the intention of the framework is to teach people a framework to think so that they can find what inspires them, understand the meaning behind it, relate that into their work and start generating and pitching ideas. And, And that is the five steps. And I'll back up just a minute is that before I talk about the framework, I talk about the need to have an objective, a specific problem that's defined before you start down the innovation path. Because back to ideas that aren't executable, it's because, hey, it sounds like a great idea, but it's random. It doesn't address a specific need that a business has. And I believe that's a a foundational part of coming up with great ideas is that it it speaks to an opportunity or solves a problem. And so the, the first of the five steps is purely observation. And that was something that I found when I did the research is that the most innovative people are highly observant of the world around them. And if, they, if you talk about connecting the dots, that ability to be observant is actually collecting dots 
that in the next step, distilling, you start to find patterns from dots to maybe constellations. And you, you say, okay, I see all of these things happen in the coffee shop this morning. The pattern that I start to recognize is community, it's service, it's friendliness, things like that. Then you look at how can I start to relate those patterns into the work that I'm doing? And, and I can give you an example of, of somebody who did this really well when we're done, but then we look at, okay, if this is what I'm trying to relate now, how do I use that to start to generate ideas and then pitch them in a way that gets people to say yes. And what happens historically is that when we need a new idea or something, what do we do? We get into a conference room and then we say, let's brainstorm ideas. And we start with the fourth step, which is generate. And then everybody says there's no such thing as a bad idea and everything that comes out of those brainstorming meetings are pretty crappy. And then so you can't pitch a great idea because you don't have something great to start with. And so people don't understand how to pitch an idea and, and bad pitches will kill even the best of ideas. And now let's hear a word from our sponsor. There are a lot of tools out there to help companies get work done. We recently switched over to a tool called Monday and we love it. At first I thought it was just a project management tool, but we use it in many ways to run our entire business. Marketing, sales, task management, even recruiting, and certainly project management. But what I love, the real difference with this one is that it has all these automations built in. So, so much of what we need to get done can be automated in a way that we don't have to keep paying attention. If something gets checked off a list, it gets marked, moved over to done, somebody gets notified. The automations are awesome. Check it out yourself at ducttape.me forward slash Monday. So the the one that I want to drill down in is observe because I find that I don't know if there's or maybe there's people I think there definitely are people that are more wired for this maybe they've just developed that trait but it just takes a it takes a fair amount of curiosity I think to observe and a lot of people I can't tell you how many times I've come across something and I go does that make sense to you that you keep doing it that way and they're like well, I don't know that's what they told me to do but that doesn't make any sense to anyone but there are a lot of people that just that just doesn't even dawn on them. So I think the observe part is probably the hardest. And the interesting thing, John, you're right. I think it is really hard for people because it's been taught out of us. If you've ever been around little kids, mm -hmm. they notice everything to a really embarrassing degree sometimes. Right. But as we go through the education process and those kids, that observation leads, leads them to say, or us when we were little, why does it work this way? Why is it like that? Why do you do that? But then in school, teachers say, you know, just stop asking why, sit at your desk, do your homework, and we'll go out to recess, that kind of thing. And then, so it's that curiosity that's actually taught and rewarded out of us in most cases through the educational system. If you don't want to be too curious in a job interview because that might throw somebody off and they'll think, well, I'm, I'm not sure I'm ready for that kind of questions or that many questions. And when you get into a job situation, it's not every boss who's fine with you questioning everything that you do under the, the veil of being curious. Mm -hmm. And so we're taught not to do that. And we're rewarded for just following group think essentially. And I think that's one of the things that is so important for us to start to understand is that this ability to observe the world around us really is innate and very natural to us. We just need to spend time to remember what it's like. And, and it does feel really good. It's fun to be curious. And here's my public service announcement to everyone listening. AI cannot observe. That's right. <laughs>
they can do all the other steps, but they cannot <laughs> observe. That's uh, that's I think your job moving forward. You used a term, and you have a, to dedicate a whole section, I think, in a number of chapters to this idea of citizen innovators. And I just thought that was a really uh, cool concept. So do you want to go there for a minute? Yeah, absolutely. Because it, it goes back a little bit to that stereotype that we have of who the innovators are, that it's a specific group. They have specific requirements. They have the secret handshake. They have the pedigree degree kind of thing. Right. But really, there's so many opportunities for companies to to innovate in even incremental ways. And, and sometimes I wonder if this book is really more about incremental innovation, but it's our ability to rethink what innovation is and who has the ability and capacity to do it that matters. And I came up with the term after thinking about journalism and in citizen journalism, where the idea of, of telling stories and reporting didn't just stay in the hands of journalists. It was people, other people who were on the scenes who were doing things. And you think about news blogs and how that spread and people cared and they were more involved and, and they wanted to be a part of this. And it's the same thing with innovation. And I think many times teams and individuals can feel my, my ideas aren't recognized. They aren't given credit. In fact, I just started working with a woman who left her last job because she said, nobody would ever listen to my ideas and they matter a lot to me. And she has phenomenal ideas. And so I think when we start to to democratize innovation and teach people a framework that guides them through it so it's not like herding cats, you really can create this band of citizen innovators. And if you think about a corporate performance and, and growth and things like that, would you rather have a 10% improvement over a, from a handful of people that has that innovation title? Or do you want a 1% improvement from everybody in your organization? And, and that's the big opportunity with a citizen innovator. So where do you personally go to look for innovation? I know that sometimes it's hard to, to find innovations in your own business, in your own thing that you're in every day that's right in front of your nose. I, I find it, but I can go read a book on calculus or architecture or something totally unrelated to marketing and get amazing ideas. Yeah. Well, and you hit on, on one of my things is architecture. And that's where I learned a lot about transplanting inspiration, because I think that's where all great architecture comes from. And if you've ever sat down with an architect who's designed something, they will tell you down to a lot of the smallest detail where the inspiration for that came from. And the first 10 years of my career, I spent with design architects and for me, and, and I was a marketer in that environment. So for me as a marketer, that was a fascinating first industry to work in. Up until the last year, travel was a big part of my inspiration. I'm actually a history major. I have a master's in history. So I go back through time and I look at how did great leaders handle things. I think there's a lot of things you can find from inspiration when you hang out with kids. And my kids are all teens now, but we have a six-year-old neighbor boy. And you start to look at the world through their eyes there's a lot that you see that just comes naturally when we pay attention to what's going on. As long as you don't get too serious and too adultish yeah, yeah. In, in what you find in playfulness and in observation and what you do with it. 
Are you familiar with Christopher Alexander's book, A Pattern Language? You should pick up his books. He's they're written in the 70s and they, he just writes beautifully about the inspiration for architecture and for designing communities. And I think you would really, I think, first off, it's beautiful writing, but I think you'd really love the connections there too. Oh, excellent. Last question I was going to ask was I, the obligatory in 2021 uh, pandemic question. And that is a lot of innovation came out of necessity through QR codes on menu for menus, through all the delivery and takeout of food. And so, so what lessons can we learn from sort of crisis and innovation? It's really fascinating, John, because I think the biggest lesson that people still don't understand, maybe it hasn't been articulated clearly enough or often enough, especially for business leaders, is that there is no time that is more ripe for innovation than crisis. And that's because everybody, every employee, every person at every single level knows that change is imminent. Yeah, we're not and they are, we're not running it up the budget flag. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> they're not, there's sitting alert. They're waiting to be told, notified, shown, guided, led through mm-hmm. what that change is. And I think that this last year and even into probably the next 12 to 18 months, companies can really use what we've been through as a tremendous accelerator, just a catapult yeah. to move forward. And all these barriers that are traditionally within companies really aren't there to the degree that they are in a, you know, quote, normal business environment. People are still expecting a lot of change. And I think if companies aren't taking advantage of that expectation, not only from employees, but from customers, that they're really missing out on a huge opportunity and they're really opening themselves up to disruption. And there's some research that came out from Gartner a couple of weeks ago that said there's a 43% gap between how customers want to buy and how, especially in B2B, how brands are allowing them to buy. And I think that's a, it's a big opportunity for disruptive innovation because here's this 43% gap that's wide open for somebody else to come in and think about how to do, to observe what's going on and what could be done and to step in and really pull the rug out from under people. And that's what happened with Uber. That's what happened with Netflix. That's what happens with a lot of companies. And it seems like people say, wow, they came out of nowhere. Actually, they didn't. They're just more observant. Yeah. And I think that, I think a lot of times the hard, the biggest problem you mentioned, the biggest problem to innovation is people just don't like change. And so I think you strip away that we're not all going to die if we change and attitude for a while. And and it really does give an opportunity, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think a, a big part of that is also the story that you tell. And yeah. if you show, if you can connect the dots in that way, people are a lot more comfortable with doing something different. Carla, tell people where they can find Rethink Innovation and and more about your work. My website is Carla with a C, johnson.co. There's no M, just .co. And Rethink Innovation, it releases on June 29th and it's available wherever you buy great books. June 29th of 2021. I have people to listen to these. I don't know what they're doing there, but three years from now, somebody will listen to this. So I want them to know what year (laughs) this uh, show came out. So Carla, it was great catching up with you. And we're just down the road from each other now. Now that people are maybe starting to get back together in real life, we'll have to... That'll be fun. Fellow Coloradoans now. It was great to be here, John. Thanks. All right. So that wraps up another episode. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. And you know, we love those reviews and comments. And just generally tell me what you think. Also, did you know that you could offer the duct tape marketing system, our system, to your clients and build a complete 
marketing, consulting, coaching, business, or maybe level up an agency with some additional services. That's right. Check out the Duct Tape Marketing Consultant Network. You can find it at ducttapemarketing.com and just scroll down a little and find that Offer Our System to Your Clients tab. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.